0: Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman.
1: Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, the podcast where we explore assisted reproductive technology, how it changes lives, and our world. I am Jennifer White, and I am here with my co-host, Ellen Trackman, who is a bast- uh, sunshine and positivity. <laughs> yes, oh. so true. <laughs> uh, so, so Ellen, tell me your tricks and tips on how to stay positive. Yes. Um I
0: I mean I to be I want to apologize to my spouse cuz I do get really grumpy about like dishes and trash and the usual oh. um but I I mean generally try to stay positive I guess by one kind of trick that I turn to uh which I can't necessarily recommend to others I'm not sure it's the healthiest but is just not thinking about <laughs> things I'm worried about so for example <laughs> um when I was flying when you lived in London and I was flying out to see you um for your 40th birthday. So now I'm dating how old you are, right? Uh and like I had I was taking birthday, a one year old with me. And I was like, oh, a trans, you know, Atlantic flight with a one year old. That is terrifying. And I was just like, there's no, there is no point thinking about it or worrying about it. So I was just like, I am not gonna worry about it. Like it will happen and it'll be fine. So that is my my definite strategy. is like just don't just, just ignore just it. Like it's gonna happen. Don't yeah. don't worry about it before it happens. Right?
1: Okay. That's that's
0: fine. obviously like pack snacks and stuff, right? Yeah, but yeah. Do, some level don't. of
1: uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> preparedness is a good thing. How about you? Do you have any, do have any tricks? I try to do small, positive, nice things oh, for people as much as possible. that's nice. Uh, I'm not very good at it and I don't do it consistently, but even like small things, you know, can make a big difference. Like the other day I was standing, I was in the airport and I was super frustrated because the people in front of me were taking forever. They obviously had a, a communication barrier with, and they couldn't order. And then they got to the front and they, um, they couldn't pay because of how it just, it turned out like there was an issue, like they weren't taking credit cards anymore. It was like, oh no, I can't remember which way it was. They wouldn't take cash and they only had cash. And, um, so, you know, like I was like sitting there and I was really grumpy and annoyed by it. And I was like, you know what, turn it around. And I actually just paid for their, their food, and like the look on their face, like the absolute, like, Aww. oh, my God. Like, the, and it was such a small thing. Like it was not expensive. It was not a big deal. And it made, it lifted me because it made me feel good that I had done something nice for them and it had helped them in a really difficult time. And I could just see like the look on them. It made a big difference to them. So small actions can make a big difference in, in being positive for people and, and spreading that positivity around. Um, so, yeah. Well,
0: our guest today has truly to be one of the most positive people I have ever met. <laughs> I mean, I have actually met right. person, but I've ever heard be so positive. Um, and his story is is incredible and um, education, he's so educational and um, just so thoughtful about everything. So I truly appreciate that. But I think everyone will really enjoy our interview with Tristan Reese. Welcome, Tristan Reese. And before Tristan, before I let you talk, I'm just going to gush about you first because, as I mentioned before, you were a celebrity to me before you ever agreed to come on. So it was very exciting because I'm a podcast fan myself and had long ago heard your story on The Longest, Shortest Time, another podcast I I enjoy and follow. And it was really fun to hear your story kind of in real time where you did several episodes about um, first becoming a parent and then later becoming a parent in another way. So first, thank you for joining us.
2: Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm happy to. Oh, yeah.
0: you, can, you can talk now. <laughs> so uh, if you don't, before we kind of dive into your really interesting and amazing stories of becoming a parent, do you want to give a little background about where you live and... Um, how you How you guys are <laughs> from the very beginning.
2: <laughs> well, in the beginning... Yes, thank you. No, I'm just yes. kidding. Um, yeah, I'm Tristan Reese. I live in Portland, Oregon. Um, my partner's name is Biff, and uh, I'm a transgender man, so I was assigned female at birth. I had a pretty traditional or a quote-unquote normal uh, girlhood up until um, around adolescence. And, and post-adolescence, I I transitioned. So I took testosterone to sort of align my body with my inner self. Um, and I've been living as a transgender man for the past, whatever, 15, 16 years. Was your, you know, and
1: uh, again, please tell me if this is not okay. Was your family supportive of you through this process? And, and and how was that just experience? I know that that's not quite what we're talking about here, but you know, I'd, I'd still love to hear like just you know, your background, your emotional support level through that
2: process. Yeah, of course. And, you know, it was a journey. It was a journey for all of us. Um, I think my parents, especially my mother, I think had some like very, very typical um, reservations about my transition. She was worried that it was uh, some kind of a fad that I was participating in. Um, I am a seeker as a person. You know, I I, I look for meaning. Um, I'm a, a joiner or, you know, I'm I'm the kind of person that is a pleaser. I want people to like me. I think she looked at those personality traits and, and was a little bit worried that I was jumping on a bandwagon. Um, and, you know, I, I wasn't really able to support her through that journey because I was going on my own journey. And so now I, I, you know, work with a lot of parents of trans youth. And I often tell them, you know, it's just not your kid's job to support you in your process. You have to go and get support somewhere. Um, not saying you shouldn't be on your journey because you should and you are. And there's nothing I can do to change that. Um, But, you know, it's just not your kid's job to hold your hand through it. Um, And I didn't have those words back then. But if I had, I would have told my mom, it's not my job to hold your hand through this. Come back when you've got it together, you know? Right, right. Um, But eventually she realized that, you know, number one, I was not destined for a life of misery, sadness, and solitude. Um, And number two...
0: That's good news for a parent. That is great
2: news. I think that was honestly her, you know, one of her deepest fears is that, you know, her kid was never going to be loved, either by a community, um, nor by a romantic partner or a family. Um, well, we had never heard of it happening when I was coming out as trans. Um, there were no models for how to do this. Um, That's,
0: I was wondering, so when she was concerned, you were kind of jumping on a bandwagon. Was there a bandwagon to jump on at that time? Did you know others? Well, or? I was
2: working really hard to find support for myself. And I definitely had some friends that, you know, that I sought out um, to kind of soften that landing. During my my process, so yes, I I did manage mm-hmm. to find some supports along the way, Um, and it was in the opposite direction that my mom was thinking. It's not like I became friends with them, found out they were trans, and then wanted to be trans. It was like I mm-hmm. was like, oh my god, I think I might be trans. Who else has gone through this? And you know, seeking them out to try and get some support so that I didn't go through it in a messy or or even destructive way. Yeah, so that's just a you know that's just a little bit little bit of the journey and. Uh, And I think, you know, the second realization that my mom finally had was, you know, that my, my path is my path and, and it's, um, and it's not really about her. And I think once she was able to distinguish between her as a parent and, and me as a kid being my own person as an adult, you know, I think that was really clear. And, and at some point we were able to just move forward. And, and now my, you know, my mom is like my biggest fan.
1: Oh, that's That's great. I
2: love it. That's really nice.
1: Yeah. That's
0: wonderful. And her concern that you wouldn't find love, how did that turn out?
2: Did uh, you find love? Is that, is that my transition? Yes, <laughs> My <laughs> transition into the yes, I got it. Um, well, you know, I think initially it she was right. I mean, it was a it was really really hard. Um, it was hard to find romantic love. It was hard to find community love. It's it's a really difficult path, and it especially was a difficult path 16 years ago um, when I was trying to sort of uh, pave the road for myself there. But you know, eventually I went to performing arts school. And, uh, and that ended up being a really amazing community where I got to really practice um, being loved as my full self. Mm-hmm. And the community there was truly, truly delightful. And I really, I think, came into my own. And it was, my first, it was the first time I know that my mom was able to see me just surrounded by this loving community. And that was really helpful and prepared me for, you know, when I finally did meet my eventual partner, Biff, it prepared me for being a a great partner and a great member of the itty bitty tiny community that, uh, that we've created in our home with our, with our kids.
1: Oh,
0: that's fantastic. Did you know early on that you, uh, wanted to be a parent and that was something that, that wanted to be part of your life?
2: Not at all. Um, (laughs) no, I, no, I never wanted to have kids. Um, Oh wow. uh... Oh yeah. Um, I think especially being, You know, I think especially being transgender, it's sort of that thing where you're like, well, (laughs) um, there's a sneaking suspicion that maybe I won't have this anyway. So I might as well just like rebuff it as something that's like extraneous or not wanted. You know what I mean? It's. Right, it's that. that
1: yeah, it's like an emotional wall, basically.
2: That's right. Well, we didn't want to get married anyway. You know that we sort of saw that. Yeah, from Because right, uh, we can The right. LGBTQ plus movement, we saw that quite a bit of people. You know, having that feeling like you know, well, that's that's fine. Marriage is for straight people. We don't want that. Um, right, and so I think it, it was probably a defensive mechanism on my part to to sort of not want to do it, but. Yeah, I'd never thought about having kids. I never thought about being a parent um, until, until I met Biff. And I started to realize like, oh, this other life is possible. And I think my like sort of footloose and fancy free, freewheeling wheeling days as a, you know, <laughs> early 20s activist traveling the country, working on political campaigns and, you know, fighting the good fight for gay rights and trans rights, you know, that, that was really, really wonderful and a lot of fun. Yeah. And then eventually it got old. And Mm. I really started to think, you know, what other parts of this human existence might I want to try out? And when I met Biff, I realized like, oh my God, I, I really could have a family. I really could create mm-hmm. a tiny circle of love and support in my own home, a tiny community. Yeah. And and then I started thinking, well, maybe that's something that we would want to do. That's awesome. Is
0: that something you discussed early on?
2: Um, we were really, really cautious about having too many big, like forever type conversations early on. Yeah. We really wanted things to take things at their own pace. That sounds really yeah. healthy
0: <laughs> Versus- it's like, it's yeah, all I, mean, the right I, right. I
2: think we were trying. <laughs> it was in this curious time, I think, in the LGBTQ plus rights movement about ten years ago, when marriage still wasn't legal. Um, and I think a lot of people, especially young people, were really wanting to prove that their relationships were were serious and legitimate. And a lot of our friends were like dating for a month and then rushing to get married, not legally, but you know, socially. And like it was just, it just seemed like they were mm-hmm. missing the best parts. Of falling in love, which are just experiencing each other and having that giddy feeling of falling in love. And then that giddy feeling of making some kind of a commitment, you know, working out are are we monogamous? Are we open? Are we polyamorous? You know, what are are we boyfriends? Figuring all that stuff out and then moving in together, you know, slowly pacing ourselves to really enjoy every stage. Because if you're really gonna be together forever, you know, once your parents, no need
1: to rush. Yeah, that's right.
2: it, it, there's no, I mean, honestly, I've now been with him for nine years and r- really like, that's it. You become parents. And then it like stretches out for 18 years until you're like empty nesters and sometimes longer than that. So I think we just wanted to enjoy those just enjoy the, those first few months. And we didn't, we, that was a good idea, but we didn't get a chance to do that because, um, you know, we became, we, we became parents overnight uh, to his niece and nephew. Oh, yeah. Oh,
0: how did that, how did that happen? I know. I know. Cause I heard the other podcast for those who have sure, not heard it for So I never <laughs> want to
2: assume that everyone's like, don't you know who I am? You know, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't do that.
1: I don't think Jen's heard it. So she's a fresh I have audience. not heard it. So I'm like, all of this is new to me.
2: Um, yeah, great. Um, yeah, I mean, we've been together for over a, just a little over a year. Um, and we, you know, got the call. There's, um, you know biff's family had some struggles and um all of his siblings have had like had their many struggles families, yeah. maybe more than men maybe more than most um yeah but in this particular situation his you know his sister found that she was not able to to take care of her kids and the truth is she hadn't been able to take care of them for quite some time and uh and we got basically a courtesy mm-hmm. phone call from her social worker whom we had been talking to you know to see if we could give any kind of support um to her through the process and Um, And, you know, Biff is and and was a social worker and there was sort of a professional courtesy at that point um, where the the social worker called us and said, listen, you know, she she can't take care of these kids and and we're going to come and they're going to go into foster care on Monday. And this was a Friday. Oh,
1: my goodness. And she said, <sighs> you know, you
2: basically, you guys don't have enough time to become foster parents and become placed, you know, get, have them placed with you. And so your best bet is to just try and see if, you know, you, she can, she'll let you t- take the kids for a little while. And maybe she can pull it together, oh. you know, and, and and get some of the structures in place that she needs, you know. And
0: that's an option that she can kind of sign over to you, guardianship or... Kind
2: of- yeah, um, at that point, it was much more of just a, um, a casual arrangement. Um, uh, signing over guardianship, I mean, that's a pretty, it's a much more intensive process that involves a judge and a lawyer and... Mm-hmm. You know, she was at that point, you know, for example, when we went to go pick up the kids, we couldn't find shoes for one of the kids. So we're talking about a really high level of dysfunction. That
1: I, I actually experience yeah. that frequently, so I I can't. I was going to say many of us have that level of dysfunction in our day to day lives. Not saying that yeah. that wasn't a serious but, situation, but, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, like I I, I can't find shoes most days for myself, you know,
2: <laughs> and shoes and like you know, diapers and cockroaches in the house and, and oh wow uh, and oh. needles oh, around and, okay. and meth being smoked. Oh, um, yeah, we're not we're oh not really goodness. talking about a normal level of oh no, where the shoes? It's yeah. like right. oh we we never bought shoes for the baby. Right. Shoes just don't exist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, we went and we picked up the kids and they came to stay with with us for a little while. And then actually, even without the kids being in that home, um, things continued to deteriorate there. So they got, they'd been pirating Mm. their electricity, for example. And so then the electrical company found out and shut off their electricity. And so, you know, the sort of the days stretched into weeks, stretched into months and um, and they agreed to have the kids stay with us, you know, till the end of the school year, for example, and the kids were only one and three, but the, but Riley, who's now our son was three and, you know, we got him into a really good preschool program and, and they agreed, okay, we'll, we'll take a little longer to, to get everything together. And then not having any, any legal connection to the kids really was a hindrance. You know, if, if one of them, for example, hard. got yeah. sick and had to go to the hospital, we would have no, we would have no ability to make any kind of decisions on their behalf. We couldn't, we had a hard time taking them to the doctor. Um, Cause if you don't- I can't have, even imagine
1: like even registering for school, like nope, even for pre-school. Right. I was going to say that's, you, you can't, you don't have the right to do that.
2: That's right. That's right. Um, so there were a lot of, you know, there were a lot of challenges to having, uh, to having the kids in, uh, in this sort of social casual situation. And- so we did get to a point where we were able to file for emergency guardianship, which was granted by the courts. One look at the, there was an investigation when the kids initially came to stay with us, you know, her her social worker, their, their biological mother's social worker came and interviewed us and interviewed her and um, wrote a report that was um, very clearly advocating that the kids stay with us. And she also spoke to some of the housemates, for example, in, in the home where they'd been staying. And it was really good that the kids had been experiencing severe abuse and neglect. <sighs> Oh my goodness! Um, and so once once that had been cleared up, it was very easy for a judge to look at the situation and 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 make the right call. And then from there, we had we got emergency guardianship, permanent guardianship, and then several years later, um, termination of parental rights and legal adoption.
1: Are you still? Are the kids still in contact with their? Biological birth mother. I mean, obviously, your your partner's sister.
2: No, um, unfortunately, she's she's actually had two more kids. Oh my goodness! Since the kids were taken away from her, um, since our kids came to live with us, Um, and one of those children has also been taken away, um, and then she just gave birth to the other last year. Um, So we're not sure what the you know what's what's in that baby's future, Um, and so she's just never been able to manage it. She's never been able to manage to call when she says she's never been able to manage to, you know, be a positive influence in their lives, unfortunately. And if that ever happened, goodness knows we would be thrilled to have it happen. But, uh, you know, our primary concern is the safety and well-being of our kids. And if someone cannot be a positive influence in their lives, they don't get to be in their lives. Um, right. it's, a, it's a privilege to have a relationship with a child. Um, and unfortunately, she just ha- isn't quite there yet. And maybe she will be one day and we are totally open to, to that right. happening. But pretty much if you ask it's, someone, sure, call us at X time and they can't do it, that, that shows that they're just not able to be with the, what the kids need.
1: Right, right, right. And do you
0: know what happened to these other... I sense like one child's still with her, but that's kind of very tied to to your children.
2: Uh, In some ways, you know, I don't see biology as being in any way, shape or form, um, uh, an indicator or a, a, you know, like a critical factor when it comes to family. Um, I think that blood is just blood. (laughs) And then it's the love Mm -hmm. and hard work that goes into being someone's family member that makes them family. Um, So in my mind that I don't, I don't feel any connection to that child. That child's mm -hmm. on a different path. And certainly if the kids ever want to have a relationship with that baby in the future, that's great. If we can find them, that's great. Um, but you know, they have a family, (laughs) right. Um, we're, we have, they have a family, they have my sister and all of her kids and, you know, and even, you know, my partner's other sister who is, you know, much more connected to us as, you know, she has a slew of kids and his brother has kids. And, they have so many, um, you know, amazing, healthy, loving relatives that get to be in their lives. Yeah. that we can't keep, ch- you know, we can't go chasing down something that that is only going it's to be in, right. in sadness for them. Um, but I will say that the, you know, their their biological baby sister um, lives with um, their grandparents, and they moved to Portland so they could be close to us. So they have sort of a cousin relationship with her. And she lives with um, with the, all of their grandparents with, with my partner's parents. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they have a they have a close relationship as well, and she's around quite a bit, and and we we support them you know as much as we can, in raising a, a sort of second generation of children.
1: Right.
0: Wow. Um, wow. So how long passed between? Sorry, how long passed between this kind of crisis becoming parents and you thinking again about uh, welcoming another another member to your family?
2: Yeah, four years. Um, Four years? Yeah, four years. And I had, you know, it just didn't even occur to me to bring anything else into the chaos of becoming parents overnight to two profoundly traumatized toddlers. Um, They were aged one and three, so not even a toddler on Haley's part. And on Riley's part, even though he was three, he was developmentally younger than one um, Uh. because he had been neglected so harshly. And so, you know, he was nonverbal. Uh, he, you know, he experienced a lot of delays that we are still working hard to to catch up on. And I
1: was going to ask, are there still issues that you're? I mean, I, yes. I, yes. Obviously, so anything with trauma. Okay. Yeah.
2: Wow. Yeah, and it's it's going to be a lifetime journey for Riley, well past age eighteen, of us supporting him to try and heal from what what was done to him. Wow. Yeah, and so it was. It wasn't until there, our adoption went legal was, was become, became legal, and we became a forever family in 2015 that I started revisiting this idea of of growing our family. And it is the thing where you know age is is creeping up on you, and <laughs> and the delay. You know what? What does it mean? What does it look like to start over from scratch as your kids start to get a little bit older? Mm -hmm. You know,
0: yeah. And so you know, yeah.
2: And so Biff and I talked about it, and and it was a very serious, long discussion. You know, we'd like to do everything deliberately. We like to really think things through and to make sure that we're making the right decision for us, but more importantly for Haley and Riley, we wanted to make sure that we weren't. Sacrificing anything that we were giving to them in order to bring a new life into the world. So it was a lot of discussion, and you know, eventually we decided, you know, yes, we would love to, you know, we would love to grow our family, and you know, adoption was just not something that we could handle doing again. <laughs> right. We had already done yeah. it. Um, <laughs> it had more than wiped out all of our savings. Um, it had been the most wow. emotionally trying experience of our lives to to fall in love with. These beautiful, amazing, resilient, powerful kids, um, not knowing what the future was going to hold for us as a family unit, not knowing how, how safe we would be able to keep them, you know, knowing that
1: mm-hmm.
2: our fate was literally in the hands of the legal system. And that was a really harrowing experience. And so yeah. for us, we thought, you know, we could definitely check that box off in terms of life experiences that we could have. Um, Done. Yep. Okay, moving on. Nailed it. <laughs> And,
1: and if, I, if I may, and again, please tell me if I'm overstepping a boundary, did you face or did you feel like you were facing a, additional hurdles because you were a, a trans male as well? Did that did that factor into any of that? Or were we at a Not point? At at, okay, I was gonna say, or, or were we at a point where at least the system was starting to equalize and, and treat you more equally as it should?
2: No, I mean honestly, I don't think that until the adoption, anyone knew I was okay. transgender throughout the process. Um, I think it's possible that, yeah, I don't think it ever came up. You know, they do uh, they do rigorous background checks in terms of your um, legal background, your criminal history, but I don't have any of that. Um, right. You know, they verify your employment, they verify your your house, they do inspections, they do all kinds of things. But I think being transgender just never pinged in that system. It just didn't ever, it was never an issue Okay. until the adoption process where they really go back. They, you know, they look, they verify like where you were born. And then obviously then they're looking at your birth certificate and I, and I wasn't able to change my birth certificate. Um, so at that point, you know, I did have to, through the adoption background stuff, I did have to disclose that I'm transgender, and my doctor had to write a letter of recommendation. Blah blah blah. So that I mean, it's a very very invasive process,
0: right? um, Which I was is that is that normal that a doctor has to write a recommendation?
2: Yes, yes, I believe it was part of the part of the process. You need letters of recommendation, I believe, from your employer, your doctor, a couple. You need people who uh, teachers, the kids' teachers, have to write letters of recommendation attesting to watching your parenting, uh, as well as people in your life. And so we had like, you know, babysitters, close friends of ours who'd helped us through the process, who had watched the kids and, you know, anyone who can attest to your parenting. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. They want to, you know, at the time it was very frustrating. Intense. I just tried to remember, you know, let's look back through history. Let's look back through Native American and First Nations kids who were literally kidnapped from their families and given to white parents who abused them. The presumption being that race itself was a deciding factor in where a kid should live and what home was going to be healthy. You know, I try to remember these rules, these laws, these policies are in place to protect kids and to right some historic wrongs. So- As invasive and unjust as it can feel, I just really try to root myself in remembering why these laws were passed and remembering that in many cases, they were put in place to protect kids and to protect families from the system, from a system that in many cases... Was making decisions that was that were rooted in racism, right. systemic and personal racism.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm impressed with that attitude. I, I am to too. <laughs> holistic about it. So it's, when you're going through it, it's so frustrating to remember all of that and that history. That's great.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just how it's quite literally how I hacked my own frustration and feelings <laughs> of bitterness and injustice is to root it in my values, um, which are safe. You know, a, a safe home for every kid, every child, a wanted child. Um, and a system that is making decisions based on what's best for the kids and not based on what someone perceives is, you know, is what a quote unquote family should look like. And that, you know, just as that mm-hmm. shows up for LGBTQ plus families, that certainly shows up for families of color. And so I just tried to remember my values. <laughs> um, yeah. And, right? uh, and to go through the process, um, trusting that the system would would figure out what was best for these, these amazing kids. And and we think that the system did its job and we, we did, we don't think that we experienced homophobia or transphobia in the process. And in fact, we believe that one judge in particular was um, a little bit harder on us and a little more lenient on, you know, the biological parents because he wanted to like show that he wasn't giving us special favor. He was a, an openly Mm -hmm. gay judge. And so our attorney was like, yeah, he was really easy on them today. So, we think he was particularly going easy on them. So, and uh, being, you know, he wasn't stringent on us. He just gave them a lot of passes, the, the biological parents. And the, the judge that came after him was appalled that they had gotten that many chances to get it together. Right. Um,
0: That's frustrating. Uh, oh, wow. It's all right.
2: You know, we just had, it was a good opportunity for me to, to practice surrendering myself to a process and not being in control and feeling. Finding comfort in times of uncertainty, and I was able to put that into practice many times since then.
0: <laughs> Tristan, when I have something really negative happen yeah. in my life, I'm going to come to you and be like, "Tell me the positive. Right. Like, give me, give me, that. <laughs> tell me how to yeah.
1: twist this into right. positive." Right? That's great. Yeah, you're you're about to be our positive guru forever and ever. Just so you know, I mean, I'm also really lucky.
2: You know, my mom was a foster parent, and so she was really helpful in helping me understand that when you show up for kids, you don't show up for them forever, and you don't show up for them for yourself and your own grat gratification. Um, you show up to give them a safe home today, and no matter what happens tomorrow, they will always look back and have that memory of a safe home today. And the data shows us that you know, kids in foster care, kids you know, who are adopted, kids who have a disruption in their, you know, biological family situation, always have that safe place to go back to if they don't, you know, mentally, if they end up having having a foster situation and then having to go back to an unstable situation, they always have that. And that's a gift that you give them, not for you, but for them. And so she really coached, you know, she really coached me around that. Um, and so that was really helpful.
1: That's, that's amazing. What a great mom to have that support. I know, right? I'm like. I also love your mom. Can
2: we? Oh yeah. Okay. I'm like. Can I get your mom's number? Yeah, she's she's really great. And whenever I bitch to her about how hard the kids are being, you know, she said, "I know that." You know, she always will text me and be like, "I know this feels hard, but like, just practice." You know, saying thank you to them for teaching you patience, for you know, teaching you resilience, for you know, you know, like what what what's the lesson here? (laughs) What's the learning? Oh my goodness. So yeah, I try. I try.
1: (laughs) So. So other things that require patience, I I know. Fertility. <laughs> if you, yeah, fertility yeah. requires a ton of patience, and I mean, obviously, you said you know like before I interrupted and made you go backwards on that 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 you guys started very intentionally. So where where did you start once you decided that you wanted to have a family? Yeah. How how? Or, I'm sorry, not have a family, continue to grow mm-hmm. your family. Where where did that go for you? Totally.
2: Um, well. You know, for me, like it was a no brainer that I should go off of my hormones and carry our child. Um, again, we'd done the adoption thing and it was something that I, you know, I have no regrets about and I would not do anything differently. I mean, I would do a lot differently, but the actual <laughs> process of adopting our children, I would not do differently. Um, and we knew we just couldn't do that process again. Um, and so for us, at that point, we had seen. I mean I have known of transgender men going off of their testosterone you know testosterone suppresses ovulation it's like any other hormonal birth control it stops you mm-hmm. from ovulating while you're on it and then when you go off of it your system kicks back into gear the uterus wakes up from its you know slumber and is ready to you know kick out some eggs and the birth outcomes between transgender men like myself who were assigned female at birth even after having been on testosterone for over a decade, um, the research shows us that our our fertility, pregnancy, labor, and birth outcomes are the exact same as any non-transgender, or we would say cisgender woman giving birth in America. So there's quite a bit of research now that studies people like me and shows that the uterus is really amazing and it really will kick back into gear even after it's been sleeping because testosterone has told it to take a, take a nap for a little while. Um, and so our birth outcomes are the same and I've, I've known of transgender men for at least 20 years who have been, who have been doing this. Most of them have done it. That's very
0: heartening for someone who might be thinking about going off testosterone for this process, but then right. thinking, what if it's for nothing to go through that? So that's great to hear That is the statistics
2: and the, the research is showing very yeah, positive. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, now, well, fortunately, testosterone is slightly more easy to access than it was 16 years ago when I started taking it. You know, more nurses in some states, naturopathic doctors can prescribe it which is, you know, in some ways it's great. Uh, You know, people should have access to, you know, be the captains of their own lives, um, be able to decide what happens with their bodies. But unfortunately, what that means is that more people who don't have access to all of the information about the effects of testosterone in the body um, are in charge of counseling trans people through that process. And I still hear from trans youth especially, but trans people saying that their doctor told them testosterone will render render them infertile and that's certainly what i was told 16 years ago but the truth oh, is wow. that there is is not an, and there has never been any evidence to suggest that testosterone causes long-term infertility there none and i think people operated on the best information available which is it causes a temporary infertility it does suppress ovulation and i think that unfortunately they extrapolated from that in ways that were not medically or scientifically accurate um, so now I'm having to do it as much as I can to educate doctors and other yeah, people who prescribe I testosterone that, to let yeah. them know. It's
0: no. so frustrating to hear it from doctors specifically where you're, you trust them to be the expert.
2: That's right. And it's, you know, it's contrary to the, the leading standards of care for testosterone, but you know, not everyone is up to date on that, and, uh, which is okay. It's hard to know all the things, but it's why I really recommend if you're going to go on testosterone and you have any access to healthcare, you know, see an endocrinologist. See someone who specializes in that delicate dance of our hormones in our bodies so that they can really make sure that A, you're really safe and healthy through the process, and B, they can counsel you in accordance with best practices. Because a lot of people are getting information that's simply not accurate.
1: So did you go off of your hormones under under the care of a doctor? Or did you just do the, I was gonna say, or did you just go willy-nilly?
2: Okay. Absolutely. Nope. I, you know, I went to a medical team because I wanted to make sure I was doing everything really responsibly. You know, as someone who's already parenting, I take being a parent very seriously. Um, I didn't, this was not any kind of an experiment or anything we were doing, you know, for fun or to make some kind of political statement. Um, It was something that we wanted to be really intentional about and responsible um, about. And so, yeah, we went to the, I went to a doctor, I got an ultrasound so they could just check, like, what is my, Uterine health look like. They could look at the lining. They could look at the follicles. They could do all the things that you know. Unfortunately, probably a lot about right,
1: right. Just to make sure that
2: everything was going okay. And uh, and they said, yeah, everything looks totally healthy. We have every reason to believe that you have a you know a a healthy number of eggs that your uterus is you know totally in good enough shape to to you know embark upon this process. Um, At that point, I was able to dig into some of the research and figure out okay, what are what are we don't know everything we know some things you know and we know that you know a, a menstrual cycle will resume within 3 to 6 months of stopping testosterone about 90% of the people uh resume their cycle within 3 to 6 months and after 6 months 100% of the people that um have been uh that where the research exists will resume their cycle after stopping testosterone Hello. so you know wow. so i tell people if you don't have your cycle back within 6 months of of stopping testosterone you might have PCOS. There might be some other thing going on. You should you should talk to a doctor or a f- fertility specialist because you should get your cycle back within six months. Um, and then I think uh, you know ninety percent of people in the studies that have been done uh, have have been able to get pregnant within the first year of trying. And so just pretty much in alignment with everybody else, if you're not pregnant within a year of trying, you know, and that's you know tr- you know a couple of inseminations if you're using ART or doing, you know, something at home, you know, a couple of, you know, normal, if you're having the type of intercourse that could result in a pregnancy, you know, if you're really giving it your best and you're tracking your cycle and all those things, you're not pregnant within a year, again, you might, you know, you might qualify. If you're not pregnant within six months, you might qualify for infertility support and coverage from your insurance. And, you know, a doctor will likely see you at that point. So yeah, I stopped taking my testosterone. My cycle came back three to four months later. Um, and we were able to to start trying at that point. So yeah,
1: right. Okay. So I textbook. I, I, I right. I, but I have to. I have to ask the nitty gritty. Did you go through IUI? Nope. I mean, I know there's a lot of dysphoria regarding this. So I didn't. You know, it's a it's a delicate question. Um, so you just just did what you need to do with a bottle of wine.
2: <laughs> no, I mean, my partner is a cisgender man. We certainly don't okay. need any alcohol in order to have intercourse. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we, we had a, a rigorous and passionate, intimate life. Um, we have had our whole time together. And so we just kept doing what we'd always been doing. Um, only this time I wasn't in testosterone. Um, and so, yeah. Got it. Got
1: it. And so I assume success, how quickly?
2: Yeah. Um, well we had, um, uh, we had a very, very early, uh, pregnancy and a miscarriage, Um, like three months, I guess, after I stopped taking my testosterone. I I actually didn't know that I was fertile at that time. I ovulated before menstruating, which I guess sixth sixth grade biology tells you that's a possibility, but I just don't know. I must've slept through that class. It wasn't quite clear (laughs) that I was um, fertile at the time. Um, And I had an early miscarriage. I mean, like two weeks after I even knew I was pregnant, the pregnancy was over, which we know one in four known pregnancies ends in miscarriage right. so so
0: there's no association as far as the research knows
2: zero and that is something that's been studied, and you know when we say um, you know transgender men are just as likely to have the same. You know, pregnancy and birth outcomes as cisgender women. That means we are just as likely the to have miscarriage. miscarriage. miscarriage, yes, miscarriage right. I mean, we're just as likely to have gestational diabetes, PCOS, right. fibroids, anything that like oh, that any other person with a uterus would have. Right, we absolutely would. And I happened to be that one in four the first time, and um, and I was on under medical supervision for that whole experience as well. And you know, they reassured me this is something that happens. Mm-hmm. We don't know why it happens unless it happens more than once. We're not even gonna sort of study why it happened because it happens so often. But, you were, know,
0: were you able to take it that way that, you know, it just happens versus like overthinking or becoming emotional? I, I don't know. I think it's
2: often so hard not to internalize. and It is. It's really hard. And, you know, I think there's so many different, there's such a diversity of approaches uh, to, you know, this, to one's internal life when they have a miscarriage. You know, I think some people feel like they lost a baby and really see it as a mourning process. Um, I really saw it as the losing of a potential future baby. I mean, it wasn't even a zygote at that point. It wasn't even a blastocyst at that point. You know, it was, it was truly the tiniest collection of cells that just didn't, you know, quite happen to progress in the way that we would have hoped. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, long before there was a heartbeat, things just stopped progressing. And, and luckily for me, you know, my body, as, as most bodies are, um, was brilliant and did its job brilliantly. It identified that this was not something that was going to be healthy to continue to, to progress or to carry um and it and it proceeded to help sort of flush out that um sort of malformed cells you know nature is messy nature doesn't give a shit about us
0: right and
2: <laughs> and bodies are nature you know bodies are messy and luckily you know our body when usually when something happens that isn't great it's the same thing like that's what a cold is it's like oh no these harmful cells have gotten into our body let's flush it out and a cold <laughs> right. sucks it sucks being sick it h- sucks you know having a cold having a cough blowing your nose, but like a cough and blowing your nose, that's your body doing its job, getting this poisonous you know, germ out of it. And it sucks in the process, but what you know is your body's doing the right thing to take care of you so that next time you'll be healthy enough and well enough to be able to carry a pregnancy to term. And that's what the medical team helped me sort of frame it as. And that really helped me sort of survive and get through the process for next time.
0: Okay. So then you were able to get pregnant again.
2: Yeah, we, we, you know, we waited, there was a, a back and forth between Biff and I to figure out how long should we wait? Six months, three months, a year, you know, we had a disagreement around that. And so Ugh. we really tried to hear each other's perspectives and, and figure out, okay, if we're at an impasse, who gets to make the call? You know, I just did what he wanted. Mm-hmm. I really trust him to mm-hmm. be smart and to do things a little bit more, um, uh, a little bit more logically than I can. I get really excited about things and I just like make a big leap. Um, and so I, I just pulled way back and I was like, you know what, you're right. Like, I really trust you. And I think once, once he knew that I wasn't doing this out of some kind of like whim, then, you know, then he just like totally came back around to my perspective and was like, no, you know, you're right. Let's, let's try again. Like, it's stupid for you to go back on hormones and wait and like, what, whatever, like, let's try again. And, you know, we tried for about three months or so, and then I was pregnant. And then that pregnancy ended up being, um, a, a pretty, you know, a pretty straightforward pregnancy. And I was able to give birth nine months later, ah, 10 months later. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. Thanks.
0: Thanks. He's how, amazing. Oh, um, Emotionally and socially, how was that pregnancy to be in a world with lots of people who have certain ideas and to be pregnant and a trans man? Did you, were you comfortable throughout the process
2: yeah, I mean, there's the internal stuff. There's the you know immediate community stuff, and then there's the world stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know, my internal process um, was actually pretty fine. It was complicated in some ways, but mostly it was fine. You know, at this point, I have I know hundreds of transgender men all over the world who've been through this process. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them were smarter than I was, and they did it pretty privately, which I think is a, really a smart decision. Wow. Well, but I still the- know them.
0: Yeah, I mean you know, that, I, that makes sense. But at the same time, you're an inspiration and help to to others who don't necessarily know how to find someone like you to to look. Right. To.
2: Sure, sure. But it came at a really brutal cost. Yeah. Um. To to my own mental health. Yeah. So yeah, that's a bit of a catch twenty two. But mm-hmm. but internally, you know, by this point, like I know all these uh, some of my dearest friends are transgender men who've had babies. So my own approach to it, having seen their bodies, having seen their process, having seen you know, their, their confidence for me, it's like, yeah, maybe the rest of the world sees pregnancy as a thing that women do. Um, I see it as a thing that mostly women do and that people with uteruses do. Mm-hmm. And having seen a lot of men go through the process, it, you know, watching my body grow and change didn't feel like, Oh no, my body's doing a thing that a woman's body does. No, it was like, mm-hmm. cool. My body's doing all this stuff to grow a person. Yeah. And so I just sort of approached it from that perspective. So Internally, it wasn't bad. And I would say that my immediate community was even more supportive than I was feeling towards myself. You know, I felt a little bit ambivalent and I tried to geek out about the science, but the larger community here in Portland, our immediate family was just like, my parents were, you know, really supportive. My mom was supportive. My dad was like overwhelmed with joy. He was just like totally overjoyed, just like wanted to come down and like feel my belly put his ear up to it, you know, like he was just like, he loves babies. He loves babies. He he's a physician as well. And so he was, um, really supportive, not in an overbearing way, but in a really lovely way. Like anytime he knew I was going for a you know prenatal exam, he wanted me to send him The whole chart, (laughs) Um, and then he would email back and be like, "Well, your blood pressure looks good, but I would look out for this, you know, whatever." Instead, but it did feel really good. It did feel great to have another person on my side. And as a trans person with medical care, you never know. You never know what bias someone is bringing, either intentionally or subconsciously. A lot of people have bias against the transgender community that they don't aren't even aware of. So to have someone who didn't have that bias, um, looking at my charts was really reassuring. And so yeah, that the immediate community was great. And as our story started to go public, even like, you know, yeah. other parents at the school would like send, you know, like a baby gift to school with their kid to give to our kids to give to us, you know, so they would come oh. home and be like, you know, whatever. Johnny's you know Johnny's mom you know wanted you to have this and it's like a really sweet little rattle or whatever you know so there was oh,
0: sweet. in
2: many ways both overt and covert our community around us was really showed up for us and that was
0: I lovely. love how positive that was but can i ask the negative what were you ever scared or?
2: Yeah. I mean, there, no, I mean, like the, the
0: internet scares me all the time. For-
2: yeah. I mean, I think if we hadn't been, if we hadn't told our story publicly, we would have had like a 99% positive experience and it would have been truly lovely. You know, we live in Portland. Um, we have really supportive family. The school where our kids go is a, is a it's a school for social justice. It's a, it's a, pri- it's a public school and they've gone through this whole so rig- rigorous social justice process over the past few years. Um, That means that they have, you know, a a really amazing restorative justice project for bullying. They have all these systems in place that that make sure that our kids are supported um, and that, you know, they're not going to experience any kind of harassment. But we did decide to tell our story publicly. We thought it was an opportunity for other trans people to know that having a family is an option, however they choose to do it, that being loved is an option. However, that shows up in their lives, we really wanted to find a way to basically get on the TV screens of as many trans youth as possible (laughs) right? Um, so that they could see um, in a way that I had no idea when I was a kid um, and that my mom had no idea when I was coming out to her and that Biff, when he was a kid, you know, as a gay man, didn't know was possible. And certainly his parents, he grew up in a Pentecostal home certainly they never knew it was possible so we sort of thought how can we reach the most number of people to tell our story and partnering strategically with journalists that we knew we could trust to tell the story responsibly is how we decided to do it um, especially yeah. since we have all these supportive systems that most transgender people do not so it really felt like our responsibility to tell our story and we thought that this this particular transpidency story was a good venue for talking about LGBTQ plus family building to talk about what it means to be, you know, to to broaden our scope of what it means to be transgender, what it means to be a family, what it means to be a man, and then the internet was really was was um, a really incredible way for us to connect with trans people all over the world. Really incredible way for us to connect with parents and grandparents and medical providers, and it was also a really a really brutal wake up call um, for me in terms of um, the kind of violent rhetoric um, and, and vitriol that exists around around challenging gender norms. I mean. The, the world is profoundly sexist and would and really like for women to be barefoot and in the kitchen and pumping out babies still. And a pregnant man really challenges a lot of those ideas. And, uh, and we really bore the brunt of a lot of backlash when it comes to that.
1: I'm
0: sorry for that. I am too. Do nice, you horrible. have any regrets sharing so publicly?
2: Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't really believe in regrets. You can't go back in time. So what's the point of that? You know what I mean? Again, anytime i something negative, I'm calling you. Like it's right? so positive. I love it. However, I will say when people come to me and ask, you know, should I tell my story publicly? I say no. Yeah, interesting. You have to be a very, very, in a very, very specific situation to be equipped to tell your story publicly when you are a pregnant, transgender, or non-binary person. And since I told my story, I think, unfortunately, people uh, had a misperception that it was going to be all positive and have tried to tell their stories. And it's, um, it's been truly catastrophic. Wow. Uh, and, you know, you have to know how to vet journalists. You have to know how to make specific rem- demands when it comes to what, what you're asking them um, when they're willing to work with you. And if you don't do that process, and if you don't understand how to tell a trans story in a compelling but accessible way, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's my entire professional life. I understand transphobia. I understand how to avoid some of those pitfalls. A lot of other transgender people, unfortunately, are not in that situation and have been taken advantage of by nefarious journalists, whether they think that they're nefarious or not. Sometimes they think that they've got their heart in the right place, but they don't. They haven't actually done the work to understand transphobia and how to avoid it and how to tell a story in a responsible way. Ended up being a couple of stories that have come out since mine that have been really gratuitous and really, really harmful. Harmful to the people whose story was being told and also harmful to the transgender community more broadly. And that's that's really unfortunate. So yeah, I don't know. Looking back, did I do more good than harm? I'm not sure. For both for the broader trans community, for my own um, optimism about the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure there are many people who are thankful to to be able to access your your story and your information. I think that it, that can be very helpful. But I'm so sorry for the world, which uh, cool, I mean, I, yeah, so much cruelty in the world yeah I mean not to to any extent of of what many people go through, but roll my eyes all the time of <laughs> what just as a you know a cis woman experiences, but you've taken all of this and taking it kind of to another level of helping others, do you want to share with us what your current um position and career field is?
2: yeah, I mean it's just one of those things where it's like amazing <laughs> <sighs> i you know like a year ago, basically, I got a Um, you know, I got a a phone call basically asking if I'd be interested in applying for a job um, at the Family Equality Council, which is a national nonprofit dedicated to supporting LGBTQ plus families and those who wish to form them. And they sort of said, you know, would you lead our efforts to support people who want to form families? And I was like, absolutely. (laughs) I would love that. So I've been able to take some of this like Personal work that I've been doing for free, and then institutionalize mm-hmm. it into an actual work plan, and as you know, in a, a strategic process for developing some programs to to really help help more people do what I've done across the LGBTQ plus spectrum. So both in fight biological family building in the ART space, um, in foster and adoption, all of those things. And so yeah, and so I've been working to build an online training program for medical providers. Um, so we have a lot of surrogacy agencies, fertility clinics, um, OBGYNs, doulas, midwives now, so that LGBTQ plus people don't have to educate their providers while they're going through a process, which is yeah. great.
0: And for anyone who's thinking about this, your training, I have to kind of give it a of to. due. It's amazing. I mean, you do a very- Oh, yeah, you've been through it. I, yeah, we've yeah, <laughs> been through <laughs> it.
1: It's incredible. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, I mean, even just- basics of language is something that's really, can be really hard for, on both sides of getting it right and being respected the way that you want, want to be. And I think that you do it in a way that's very, very kind and clear. And I, I certainly appreciate how you break it down in a way that's very helpful.
2: Oh, well, I, I really appreciate that. It was a lot of work and, you know, I just have a really incredible support team at, you know, at Family Equality Council, the, the board was all part of my beta team and, you know, I, I had the, the, whole staff went through it and gave me feedback. And so there was, you know, it was about a year, um, of the process of making it. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, it was a lot of work and I'm really proud of it. And that's a big chunk of what I do. And the big, the next, next chunk of what I do is I, travel the country and I host educational events, you know, uh, panels, forums, whatever I can put together to help the community Mm -hmm. understand all their available routes or paths to to parenthood. So, yeah.
0: So someone who wants to learn more, where should they start?
2: Yeah. I mean, go to familyequality.org and uh, same thing on Facebook. We're Family Equality Council. Same thing on Instagram, Family Equality. Um, We post all of our upcoming events there. You can learn more if you know if anyone's a, a provider, anyone who works with the LGBTQ plus community in the family space. Um, they can just go to our website and, and check out the Open Door Professional Training Program that we've put together to, to help people through that process. Um, the the one hundred and one is the first module, and then I have I've built an entire an entire module on um, on everything we know, basically on transgender fertility, both for transgender men, transgender women, non binary people. All that research is out there. It's just never been compiled into one place before. And so I feel pretty excited that that now it is and people can access it. And what I hope is super relevant, accessible language. I try to take all that academic stuff um and uh, and distill it down into real real people talk right. so yeah
1: take out the as as we call it on the other side of the legal ease you take those words out make it real so people actually get it the medical ease the medical ease is that how it is? Right. is that is that a thing i don't know i, I, I don't know either I don't well know. you know i
2: interviewed a physician and she's like you know testosterone is a dose dependent ovulation oh
1: no you're like
2: i can't use that language that's not helpful explain it to me as if i'm five yeah, right
1: <laughs> exactly but that's my job.
2: You know it's their job to actually know the information. It's my job to try and communicate it out in a way that makes sense to people. So, yeah, that's what that's what I try to do.
0: Hmm. Well, thank you for again. I know you shared your story so many times, but we appreciate you for coming on and sharing it here and for being a great resource out there.
2: Of course, of course, I do my best. So thank you. yeah.
0: Thank you again to Tristan for being so open and sharing. Uh, your your story and your family story so so openly and honestly with us and everyone and I just want to reiterate the family equality council as this great resource and the trainings that Tristan had put together are are really great and they're you know, in segments are really digestible and break things down in a way that's very understandable where you're listening to him talk and then you're answering questions and there's scenarios. And I think it's just, this very well done. So I recommend everyone to consider checking out those trainings at the Family Equality Council. And if you are a business, if you have a certain percentage of your employees or your team go through this training you can get this badge that, says, that shows that from the Family Equality Council that you have trained and you, you care about learning and educating your company
1: about, about these issues. Yeah. And Tristan is super accessible about all that stuff too. So a you know, really great resource, just even talking to you, know, you as a business as to how to do this and how to make it so that your, your staff is, is really aware and, and caring and really taking care of everybody as they go through. Um, so uh, again, twice now, no good transition to this (laughs) is there. (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah, please. Wrapping up. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, We still love when people go and uh, rate us on iTunes. So please go do that. Look for us there and uh, give us a call or an email. We, we've been corresponding with a couple people and it's been a lot of fun. And, uh, you can call us at 303-997-1903. And as always, 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 huge thank you to Chris at Work at Bird Studios and to our fabulous, wonderful team who makes us shine in in such incredible ways. So we are thankful to all of you. Uh, Thanks so much.